KBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Donna Lowry, host of GPB TV's Lawmakers and the new show, Lawmakers Beyond the Dome. I'm filling in for Bill Niga today. We're going to dive into our education show in just a moment. But first, I want to bring in our panelist, who's always here on Friday, who we love, Jim Galloway, who is the retired AJC columnist, to talk about the January 6th hearing. Jim, how are you? I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. I uh, I stayed up rather late last night uh, to, to watch yet another primetime uh, hearing of the of the January 6th committee. Uh, this was the one that was dedicated to uh, to uh, uh, showing uh, uh, former President Donald Trump's inaction uh, during the during the 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 insurrection. Uh, the 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 famous 187 minutes of of of, of silence coming from. From his office, or his, I guess the the private dining room in the in the White House. Uh, if uh, of local note, of local note, I think the two most important things were that were that, that came out were were some some messages that two Georgia members of Congress um, uh, sent to sent to uh, text messages sent to Mark Meadows, uh, Trump's chief of staff. There was uh, one from Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, it said, "Mark, I was told that there, just told that there was an active shooter on the first floor of the Capitol. Please tell the president to calm people. This isn't the way to solve anything." Two things uh, about this: this this text was sent at two twenty two twenty eight four minutes after uh, Donald Trump sent that uh, famous tweet, infamous tweet uh, that that kind of dinged uh, Mike Pence for not uh, not. Uh, uh, rejecting the uh, rejecting the elect- electoral college uh, account. Uh, also, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene later 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 that day would uh, declare that uh, the, that she thought this was an Antifa uprising. And of course, if if you if if it's an Antifa uh, uprising, why are you calling Donald Trump to stop it? Uh, he he doesn't have a lot of clout with those people. The other the other uh, text message was from Barry Loudermilk. Uh, this was at two forty four p.m. This was twenty minutes after that the, the Pence tweet, and which uh, Loudermilk says they have breached the Capitol and it's really bad up here on the hill. So he knew what was going on. What's interesting about Loudermilk, of course, he's he he uh, he was accused of of giving that uh, that that capital tour that capital tour on January fifth, the day before the insurrection, with some people taking some very strange photos of of the area. But also one thing that came out this week is that if Republicans take over the U.S. House in November. Uh, Barry Loudermilk is in, in in line to become the the chairman of a House committee that kind of looks at looks at uh, the doings of of his, of that chamber. He could be he could very well be in a position where he's conducting an investigation of the January sixth investigation next year. Wow. That's amazing to think about that. And certainly interesting what we found out with these text messages in that both of them have sort of made this sound like it's not that they weren't concerned about it. Right. But we found out that at the time they were very concerned about what was going on there at the Capitol that day. So. All right, Jim, the New York Times reports the committee could share a preliminary report of their findings by September and a final report by December. We'll see more of these hearings before the next session of Congress takes over. And so we're going to keep uh, an eye on all those headlines. Thanks for bringing us up to date on that, because it was it was a fascinating all of these hearings have been fascinating to those of us who are really, really uh, watching all of this on a regular basis. So let's get into switching gears now. Um, I know you're prepared for back to school as um, your daughter is a teacher, right, Jim? Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think uh, Cobb County starts school. Uh, the teachers report uh, on Monday. I I, I do believe. Yeah, we have some starting really early. Next week, uh, some of them are starting the first. 
as early as the first. I thought I'd find some that might start next week, but it looks like the first, even the ones that already start, always start early. Next week, many of Georgia's 115,000 teachers will start heading back to school for pre-planning sessions, and during that time, they'll attend these professional training sessions to update them on new local school district mandates and to break down what's required of them under Georgia's new laws. And the Georgia legislature has given educators lots of new material to follow this year. Think of it as a version of how to teach in today's political climate 101. There's a lot there. I spent a few decades as an education reporter in Metro Atlanta and worked a couple of years in two school districts, so I'm looking forward to diving into this discussion, this intersection between education and politics with our panelists. So, so uh, also along with us today, another of the AJC's respected columnists with a deep well of knowledge of all things education, Maureen Downey. And she writes the paper's Get Schooled column. And Maureen and I spent years covering the same press conferences, Maureen. I'm so glad you're on the show. Thank you, Donna. Next is the national education reporter for Capital B News, Julia Hayward. Capital B News is a nonprofit newsroom covering black communities across the U.S. And Julia's background includes serving as a national reporting fellow with The New York Times. And Julia, you also earned, interned, I guess, at Politico, right? Yes, I did. Yeah. That's true. Yes. Well, well, thanks for joining us. Tell us briefly, tell our audience how they can find Capital B News. Yes, of course. So we are a digital publication, meaning that you will not find ourselves in print. It is online only at capital B News. Um, that's all spelled out. dot org. And I just want to plug in that we have a weekly newsletter that comes out um, that shows just all of the great work that our reporters have done that week. Yeah. So we want to say it's capital B and capital with an A, not an A-L instead of an O-L, which I'm yeah. used to using a lot because I work at the Capitol. OK. We're also <laughs> benefiting from the knowledge of another journalist uh, who, who's been a journalist fellow um, this morning. Laura Corley is the Civic Journalism Fellow with the Macon Newsroom. And Laura covers public health and education in Bibb County and is also a reporter for The Current, which covers coastal Georgia. Hi, Laura. Hi there. Thanks for having us. We're glad you are here. Well, let's let's dig right into it. There's lots of things to talk about. And, Maureen, I think we're going to get right into what what we know is going to be big this year or we're expecting. And that is this current climate when it comes to certain things in the classroom because of the laws that were passed. And so let's start with a few of them, including the controversial ban on so-called divisive topics when it comes to race. Yeah, the legislature, you know, as, as you pointed out, this was not a great year for education. It was top of the agenda in the legislature, but in a very political way. And uh, somehow or other, the strategy came about that uh, sort of demonized uh, civics class, history class, social study classes, that somehow these classes were devoted to discrediting the history of the country and casting it only through a racial lens. So they pass divisive content uh, concepts, which really limits how deeply and how, frankly, uh, teachers and students can talk about race and racism, both current and past. But there's also um, a subtext to these bills that we have to talk about, uh, and that is what it says to teachers. And what it says, despite the raise that the governor gave teachers, it says, we don't trust you. We want to control how you teach and what you teach. They had many teachers and uh, department heads and principals testify against these bills, and yet they passed them anyway. So I, I think that we are starting the year off um, with teachers getting paid more but getting less respect, at least in their minds. Yeah. The interesting thing about all of this is that there was this this real uh, feel feel down at the Capitol that Republicans really felt that they were doing something really great, reining in teachers who they say use the classroom as a political um, in a political way. And then the, the opponents are saying, no, nope, this is just an election year ploy to for to get votes at students expense. I know that there are teachers, I've talked to them, who are pretty nervous about all of this. I, I wanted to find out what you thought about this, Julia. Um, I mean, it is just such 
a difficult time to be a teacher right now. I mean, we are seeing, just to the point that was already made, dozens and dozens of states pass these bills that either limit or severely, that either ban or severely limit how race is talked about in the classroom. We're also seeing these school shootings that are happening, and we're seeing at least a couple rural districts that have even gone so far as to um, um, pass legislation that allows teachers to have guns with them while they are teaching. I mean, the way that teaching looks now is just so much different than what it looked like five, ten years ago. And even in the interviews that I do with teachers, that is a very strong sentiment that they feel. It just feels so much more political and so much more dangerous than it's ever felt in the past. Well, we're going to get across every state. Yeah, thanks. We're going to get into those safety issues in a minute. But just that overall feel of heaviness, Laura, I think that there's, you know, there's also the new law that deals with obscene materials. It permits the removal of so-called harmful books from school libraries. There's the Parents' Bill of Rights. Parents have the fundamental right, the bill says, to direct the upbringing and education of their minor children. And the sideline to that is parents have always had a say in what is going on in the classroom. Nobody's ever said, oh, parents, don't tell us what, you know, what you want your kids to learn. So, Laura, your thoughts on what, what, you're, what you're hearing and seeing? Well, I think the sentiment is the same for, um, for the other bill. You know, Bibb County passed a resolution last night um, and made clear to say that, look, you know, this isn't something Bibb County wants. This is something that you know, we are required by law to pass. And, um, you know, w- one of our board members even apologized for, for having to do it, um, you know, and described it as a, a solution in search of a problem. Um, and, you know, w- when a law is passed, folks assume that this law fixes an issue or that there's some problem out there that it addresses. And in this case, it is, it is the it, you know, it's described as, as the creation of a public perception that there is a problem. Um, you know, the role and responsibilities and expectations of teachers have not changed. Um, and the, it, the board last night had two versions of the policy and, and it ended up going with the one with, that didn't have all the definitions of the divisive concepts um, to kind of maintain the integrity of, of what happens in the classroom. Yeah, you've got to believe that this is kind of feel, weighing heavy on teachers, Jim. Yeah, you know, the, the, and and uh, what's what's interesting, this is coming after uh, what a, a two years of COVID, and and a solid year of of students learning from home on laptops, and uh, uh, as as you mentioned, we've uh, uh, my family is an education family. And when this topic comes up, comes up, I've 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 got a daughter who teaches history, and she notes that during that COVID response, you had I mean the, during the COVID response during the, that all that time, you had students uh, with their laptops open at home, listening to her teach at home, uh, with parents uh, available to watch what was happening at home, and she got no requ- uh, she, she she received no complaints. Uh, this is this is uh, this is uh, very much a, a, a tactical uh, uh, move by the by the uh, by the Georgia GOP. Uh, you had a you had a, a, a Republican in Virginia, Glenn Youngkin, uh, win in November. Win, uh, win, win in November. He won, he beat uh, a Democrat Terry McAuliffe uh, in November on on this feeling of estrangement uh, between parents and school systems. Uh, so th- that's what that's what this is really about, and and uh, you know I I would I would guess that uh, after you know, say maybe November eighth, November ninth, November tenth, it's an issue that will just quietly go away. Yeah. In the meantime, Maureen, we've got these teachers who are they you know who've been t- some of them have been teaching for years the same kinds of things, and yet now have to to figure out what what they can say and what they can't say for because they may fear that that somebody's going to call them out on it. Yeah, and I think, of course, we have um, this new era where teachers are being recorded uh, by on cell phones, and uh, we're only sometimes seeing 30 seconds of what might have been a six-minute discussion. And, and it's not just teachers. The, the issue that I see for teachers, particularly in middle and high school, when kids are inquisitive, when kids are reading the news, they know what's happening. And when, when kids want to bring these topics up, 
that's what I'm concerned about, that these will be volatile topics. You know, if there's a police shooting, uh, if there is a, a Black Matter, a Black Lives Matter protest, and they want to talk about what happened there, that is, those are things I think teachers are going to avoid because they're not part of the curriculum that day, and they might have a kid who is going to go home and say, we didn't even study what we were supposed to today. We just spent the whole time talking, you know, talking about this protest in downtown Atlanta. And I think student-led discussions in classes are so important, and I think responsiveness to the news is so important. I think we have handcuffed our teachers in Georgia from responding to those students' concerns, and, and that's what worries me. If kids can't talk about these in safe environments, with a teacher, with their classmates, I, I feel like they don't really have any recourse about where they can, can learn about what's happening now in their lives, in their country. Yeah, what we're told is that teachers are supposed to help students de- uh, develop critical thinking skills. Part of that is being able to discuss things uh, that are not always comfortable to talk about, but you're getting the different voices in the discussion. And you're, you can't get that if, you, if you've got to... Um, hold the line on things, and if teachers going to feel that they've got to shut things down or just can't move into other things, um, talking about that. I, I'm going to stick with you a little bit, um, Maureen. We want to talk about, and when you talk about race and divisive concepts, we can't ignore this logo controversy in East Cobb County. So there was the a report, a GPB did a story. The rollout of the new logo for an Atlanta area elementary school has been paused after parents noted similarities to a Nazi symbol, though a school district said the design was based on a U.S. Army colonel's eagle wings. And the Cobb County School District said Tuesday that it it has halted distribution of this new logo at Eastside Elementary, which is in Marietta. And it drew all this condemnation because when you look at it, and I know that we can't we can't show it on radio, but if people go to gpb.org, they will find the story on this, and they will be able to see how it does look similar because it adds the school's mascot and these, these, these school's initials, Eastside Elementary ES. Maureen? Yeah, you know, I started hearing about that Monday night and into Tuesday and um, the AJC reporter, uh, Cassidy Alexander, who covers Cobb, had a story about that. You know, it happened in Cobb where they have had um, some other um, cases in the schools of anti-Semitic uh, uh, drawings on the walls and writing. So that is a parent group that was, is, on, is on alert. So when those parents saw that, and particularly with that background, and that's a recent background in Cobb County, and... and the parents felt, in some respects, in the past, Cobb has underplayed its response, Cobb schools, to what they consider as a, as a very dangerous trend. And I think that um, I, I'm not sure how that symbol, that logo, got as far as it did, because when you see the comparison um, with the uh, the um, uh, Nazi Germany crest that it, that it looks like, it actually jumps out at you. So I think there's a lot of of carelessness, perhaps, um, a lack of oversight in that. Uh, but the greater trend is how the school system responded. I have to say that once parents sounded the alarm this week, they did not hesitate. Now, how we got to that point, we're still not clear. Who developed this, why they developed it, and how it wasn't vetted better. Yeah. Jim, weigh in on this. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, f- the, the first thing we need to take a, take a note of, this, this is uh, Eastside Elementary School, which sits across from uh, Temple Cool Emmeth uh, in Marietta. I mean, it sits across from a, a synagogue. So there's that. Uh, if, 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 you're, if you're on Facebook uh, and, and you're connected to, to, to Cobb Schools, uh, there, there's, a, there's a Facebook po- uh, post by uh, Larry Cernovitz. He's the, the senior rabbi. At, at the temple, and he says he did have a set, sit down with uh, uh, school superintendent Ragsdale uh, uh, yesterday, and uh, he, uh, Ragsdale said this was the this was the a, a blunder by the the school district's communication department. But uh, he, he's he's uh, he's let me see. I'm I'm looking for the uh, the sent uh, the the sentence that he had to do. Uh, he had uh, basically he he said that Ragsdale ad- admitted that. That the school district's sense of history of the Holocaust 
was 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 far too shallow and they need to get they they need to deepen their understanding of this uh of, of that event which which i find uh uh, I would like it. I would like to hear that from Regsdale's lips himself, but I, I will take the rabbi's word for it. Yeah, it's interesting to have that talk about a sense of history when we're talking about also uh, tamping down on what is being taught when it comes to history, especially when it comes to racial issues. Laura, yeah, any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I mean the conversations just get harder. Um, you know, when when you make teaching a hard, an even harder job. It just, um, you know, it doesn't do anything to help uh, a, a trickling pipeline of educators at this point. Yeah. Julia? I mean, what initially comes with thought is what recently happened in Texas. We saw that a group of educators, part of the state board, um, the state um, education board, excuse me, um, introduced a proposal that did not pass, it was rejected, but introduced a proposal to the second grade social studies curriculum to um, introduce slavery as being a part of quote unquote involuntary relocation. I know that that news went viral um, a week or two ago, so people may recall that. I mean, we are seeing all of these sort of efforts to really sort of change the narrative on the legacy of slavery in this country. And it's really interesting that it's coming at this particular time. Yeah, it's, it'll be interesting to see what happens as the school year starts, as these teacher planning sessions start, and then as the school year develops and, and what comes out of all of this. And whether or not, Jim, as you said, after the elections, we'll see all of this die, on, die, die down or, depending on what happens, continue. So we'll, we'll certainly keep an eye on that. I'm, I'm going to go to our first break right now. And when we come back, I want to dive into the school safety and security issues. You're watching Political Rewind or listening to Political Rewind on GPB. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Donna Lowry filling in for Bill Nygut. Before we back, get back to today's education topic, I want to mention what we're doing on Monday's show when I fill in because we would love to hear from you for that show. Monday's panel will focus on college student loans, from the loans themselves to where we right now are with them in a country. But on the political front, many consider student debt as a, at, it's at a crisis level. And if you have any questions for our panel, we'd love to hear from you. Please leave us a voicemail message at 404-494-0421. Again, that's 404-494-0421. And we'll, I'll give you that number later on in the show, and we'll also make sure we put it on GPB, at GPB News on Twitter. So now let's get back to our panel and our focus on K-12 education with the AJC's Maureen Downey, retired AJC columnist Jim Galloway, Capital B's Julia Hayward, and the Macon Newsroom's Laura Corley. So let's talk about school safety because, of course, we've had a summer of focus on that. And certainly the what happened in Uvalde, Texas, uh, is still so weighing so heavily on all, all of us right now. Um, also, constitutional carry in Georgia was signed into law at the end of the last school year, basically. So it raised a lot of questions for educators and administrators. And once again, there is talk of arming some teachers. So um, the, one of the things we know, that the State Board of Education is implementing measures to increase school safety and security across the state. And so one of the things that we can talk about is uh, their, their website that they have right now that's interesting. And um, I think, Laura, you looked into that not too long ago, and you actually did a tweet on the, the, some of the safety measures across the state that they're doing when it comes to uh, school safety. I thought it was interesting. It's something about a code red guard for school doors. What's that all about? Yeah, so um, there there is a, a new device that sort of flips around the hinges of a door um, and can be done pretty quickly. Just steel encases the, the hinges and prevents it from being opening. Um, there's also a, a, another feature that, you know, can slide in front of the small uh, rectangular glass window in some of those doors, too. Um, but, yeah, those, those were some things that were discussed at the recent State Board of Education meeting. Um, 
they've uh, created this new school safety advisory board uh, that met for the first time last month. And uh, it, it sounds like it's still developing and working on its missions and goals. Um, but but it sounds like a step in the right direction. Yeah, I know, the, you know, you talk about this, this, this code red thing. It's kind of interesting to even to think about that. I know some of the schools also have these devices where teachers can actually wear their wearables, where they can set off alarms, silent alarms when something happens. So I guess there's this movement to try anything. Uh, one of the things in Clayton County schools, they're removing the use of backpacks when it comes to um, the regular backpacks. They're just going to go to the clear backpacks. Rockdale County has talked about doing that also. Um, talk a little bit about some of the things you know, Maureen. You know, you, um, you made the comment, Donna, that schools are ready to try. Uh, we're ready to try anything. The only thing we're not ready to try in Georgia and, and nationwide is raining in guns. And I have to point out in the Texas shooting, it was shocking to see the leaked uh, uh, official review of that of that tragedy to find out that at one point there were 376 law enforcement officers at that school, 376, and we they still could not stop a single shooter from killing 19 children and two teachers. So th this is a heartbreak to me because, like you, I've been reporting on this long enough to know that the problem is easy access to guns and. Teachers that we're putting the onus on teachers is amazing to me. We, we have a problem that law enforcement can't solve. Folks who are, who are trained in this, and we want a teacher with, with 25 to 30 kids in her class to somehow, his class, somehow to control this and manage this. And, and the uh, Robb Elementary had a, a protocol. They had doors that locked. But you, there, there's human nature. It, it's a fun, one of the last days of school, the doors propped open. These are the kind of things that you simply can't police 24-7. And I, I want to point out again that we want to respond to gun violence with more guns in our schools. We have added, in my time covering education since the um, 1990s here in Georgia, we now have armed officers in every school. I mean, it's not the problem that there's not guns. It's a problem that we're dealing with uh, young people, often teenage shooters, who, who really are <laughs> – you know, basically crazed at the moment. And, you know, it's very difficult because they don't do logical things. They are willing to walk into a school knowing that there's an armed officer there. So the key is to keep them out of the school. I think it's terrible that we're asking folks in the school to mount defenses once a shooter is inside. What can we do as a country, as a state, to keep guns from coming into the schools in the first place? And I'm sorry to be so passionate, but I feel like I've written about this a hundred times I feel like every time I, I look at Facebook and I see a picture of a school, I'm afraid it's a school shooting uh, story coming up again because it's almost weekly now. We don't even make a big deal when it's only one or two students shot by another student. It's only when it gets into these numbers in, at the Texas, at Robb Elementary, that it becomes a front-page story, and, and that's heartbreaking, too. Yeah, it's it's a gut reaction for a lot of us and certainly a lot of parents. Julia, you've written a lot on this topic on, for, uh, on national level, and one of the we'll talk about the school resource officers article you wrote in a moment. But let's talk about the article you wrote dealing with the trauma that students feel when they are dealing with these school shooting situations or the possibility of them happening. Yes, I spoke to a child psychologist who basically broke down what the ramifications of these school shootings are for young children. I mean, you don't even need to be a victim of a school shooting to have it affect you and how comfortable you feel in a classroom. Even hearing about it on the news um, can make school a place where students are supposed to learn and feel comfortable. Um, it can now become a place of anxiety for them. And when we think about the longevity of students and when we think about what we want them to get from the school experience, it doesn't bode well to have children across the country now fearful every time they step into a classroom. And unfortunately, that is what we're starting to see. 
Yeah, you've got that. Then the other story that you focused on is school resource officers. They've I, I, I covered when they were first going into the schools and some schools have them where they have guns. And for a while, some schools had them where they didn't have guns. I, I don't know if that still exists or not. But, Julia, talk about that. The fact that they really aren't a blanket solution that people we thought that they were. A lot of people thought they were early on. I mean, it just, you're going to hear the, these conflicting narratives on whether or not police officers actually make schools safer. Um, I think it's really important to note that we really saw an influx of officers being used in schools following the Columbine massacre um, and this idea that schools are safer with them. And I mean, when you speak to law enforcement um, agencies, they will tell you that, that police officers are vital and that they are essential and that um, they've been able to stop school shootings from happening. But at the same time, we've seen these high-profile cases where that hasn't been the case. Um, I can think most recently in Uvalde, Texas, where there's now an investigation into whether or not police officers responded as quickly as they could have to the gunmen that had been on campus. I mean, even back in 2018, following the shooting in Parkland, there had been news that a police officer had actually remained outside the school building um, while the shooting was taking place. Um, And then you will also see data from various civil rights activists and groups that say that the increase of police presence in school has actually led to an uptick in the amount of black and brown children that have been arrested and put into juvenile um, halls and um, spaces because of minor um, offenses that they've had in school, almost as if it's an over-policing issue. So, I mean, it, it honestly depends on who you talk to. Different people are going to feel differently on whether or not police officers actually help. And it's quite obvious that it's continuing to be this really polarizing question for a lot of people. Yeah. Jim, we're going to going to hear a lot of talk about various things, the solutions that the, the teacher. I, I can see these school board me, um, meetings coming up where this is going to be a major focus, school safety and security. Yeah, you, you've got you've got kind of two two prongs of a problem here. Uh, number one, uh, you you had mentioned Clayton County and uh, and Rockdale. I believe Clayton County is also going to install five million dollars worth of metal detectors. So you you have a, a a a problem within some student populations with I would call disputational violence, where you have where you have one on one or one on two, one on three arguments going among students. They 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 they. They they have not learned how to de-escalate these arguments. Somebody brings a gun to school, uh, and that's what these clear back uh, bag, um, backpacks are all about. Then you have the murder suicide uh, uh, incidents, and that's that that's what Uvalde was. That's 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 what uh, that's what the shooting up in, in Buffalo, the Buffalo grocery store was. Uh, the, uh, uh, one shooter survived. He he didn't he he didn't anticipate that he was going to, and and that's where you, where you have your mass shootings. I think that's where a lot of school boards are are, are focusing, and that's where Marines right. It gets down to weaponry. I mean, these people are walking in with a a a, a weapon of war that that just does horrendous damage. So it's it's there there are at least two problems. I would say probably more. Uh, in in addressing this problem, yeah, and Marine, I think you know we're we're starting to see it, and we're going to see more where these, and we may see the Georgia legislature deal with this, and that is whether or not teachers should be armed, and we'll see local school districts looking at that. We've had it before. I cannot recall which one it was, but I'm not sure if that's still happening. You know, I think there are some rural districts that took advantage of that option to um, for teachers who are willing to be armed. The vast majority of teachers in this state are not willing to be armed. The vast majority of teachers in the world are not willing to be armed. You know, I, I will go back to how we started this. Now, we are turning to teachers now to solve every societal problem. For example, we're also asking them to deal with the mental health crisis. And... These folks are, are really tasked with closing whatever learning losses occurred during the pandemic. 
So when we pile on mental health, in, in, including being sort of the um, first line of defense, you know, looking at kids, referring kids, hoping that the referral leads to something, and, and it doesn't always because we, we have a whole other issue with mental health uh, crisis of, of providers. And then we're going to say to them, and by the way, please uh, uh, plan to defend your class against the shooter. Um, so I, I really don't know how we expect anyone to go into teaching in 2022. It just uh, it stuns me how every time there's a problem, we turn to the one person, in my view, who's already overworked and underpaid and say, do more and, and take on, take on uh, learn a skill set and solve a problem that was never yours to start with. Yeah. I, and I want to get digger, dig deeper into that a little bit more. So I'm going to go to a break now and take the final break on Political Rewind. And we'll come back with more of our guests in just a moment. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Donna Lowry filling in for Bill Nygut, and we're talking education issues with Jim Galloway, Maureen Downey, Laura Corley, and Julia Hayward. And we we finished the last segment with Maureen. You're talking a little bit about burnout when it comes to teachers, and, and so we want to get into that a little bit more. So a lot of teachers are experiencing it. We also know that there are a lot of teachers who just decided that last year was it. Right. So we saw a lot of teachers retire. They were near retirement and said that was it. I have also talked to those who are worried in the colleges in this state on whether or not we're going to get young people interested in going into education, whether they're going to consider teaching a, a, a good place to, to go because of safety issues, because of all the things we've talked about in terms of all of these mandates that have come down on them. And I wondered, Laura, if you had, had some thoughts on what we're seeing, you know, in, in your areas when it comes to teachers and how they're, how they're feeling and dealing with all of this. Yeah, Donna, we're seeing just a dramatic decline of, of people who want to do this job um, and, and their folks, you know, watching the job being done and seeing teachers being put at the center of all these things and having um, extra duties and, and low pay. Um, it's 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 dismal. Um, and. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's really it really is hard. We had the uh, teacher of the year in Gwinnett County who teaches math, and he just decided to quit. And he decided to use his forum as the teacher of the year to be able to say, hey, listen, it's tough. You guys have no idea what we're dealing with inside of these classrooms. And then, Maureen, you also had a, a really good good piece dealing with this powerful data on the Georgia Department of Education actually had a teacher burnout task force. And I remember when they when they started asking questions a few years ago, and now they have some answers. And it's not good. No, it's not good. And the, the burnout task force grew out of a, a survey that they did a few years ago in which uh, almost, I think it was 66.9% of current teachers in Georgia would not recommend the profession to uh, family and friends and younger people. So that is where we are right now. We don't know... A lot of this is speculation. We won't know about teacher shortages and teacher resignations for about a year, but certainly we are seeing lower enrollment in teacher preparation programs in, in Georgia and across the country. So I think the issue is Georgia is going to be faced with how are we going to not only retain the teachers we have, but convince these college students to to get into the field. And um now, not to bring politics too much into this, but, you know, I do think that the uh, uh, Stacey Abrams plan for a $50,000 starting salary is not as crazy as it might have sounded a few years ago. Young people coming out of college are expecting, uh, you know, they want salaries of $50,000, $60,000. That is not so unusual. And if we 
put a premium on teaching and, and what it means to Georgia and Georgia's future, then 50000 may be a reasonable amount. Yeah. And I think, you know, I actually uh, t- talked to her down when she down in the uh, Savannah area when she was talking to the Georgia School Boards Association. And she really thinks that you've got to start there with the pay, at least make them feel that it is worth it to to deal with a lot of these heavy issues that they're they're handling. Jim. Yeah, uh, Donna, I don't, I don't want to, to 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 direct you on how to do a Monday show. There's a huge link between student debt and teacher pay, and if you if 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 teachers if teachers aren't paid enough to to both pay down their debt and and live a a a, a secure life, then there's a big problem, and that's why that's I would be very very interested in 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 uh, w- w- trying to to watch uh, the response of Brian Kemp to uh, Abrams's fifty thousand uh, dollar. Uh, Salary minimum because I, I he I mean he's he's already that would his his five thousand his five thousand uh, dollar raise over I, I think over the course of four years was 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 one of his big initiatives. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if Abrams forces him to go larger on that. Yeah, it will be, and they they have very different responses to that, and certainly a lot of other issues. You know, uh, when it comes to school safety and those kinds of things, and I think people will be looking at it. And Jim, we got to talk about the fact that when it comes to <clears throat> excuse me, we've we've learned from the past that teachers. Um, the teachers can help determine what happens when it comes to whether or not a governor is elected. Who's elected as governor? Oh right, yeah, yeah. You can you ask Roy Barnes. Uh, ask Roy Barnes back in back in uh, uh, two thousand two, uh, uh, and and uh, you know, it, it, I don't. I, I I still maintain that the flag was the, his his changing of the state flag was probably the larger issue there. But but dissatisfied teachers uh, were were a factor, and and quite frankly, what Barnes was doing, uh, it, it pales in comparison with what teachers are facing right now. Uh, I mean, uh, Barnes was attacking a few elements of teacher tenure, uh, and and this is uh, what we're talking about here in the classroom is I think is is, is more existential, uh, with with uh, when you're talking about uh, school shootings and when you're talking about COVID. Yeah. Julia, I know you cover all the education on a national basis. Are, is is the, the money making a difference at all? What are the factors that you think are going to keep teachers wanting to teach, given all that we've talked about today? Yes. Even outside of Georgia, we are seeing other states. Um, so a couple months ago was the end of the legislative session for a lot of states. And one, one initiative that got passed, and a fair amount of them, was increasing teacher pay. This is actually something that I wrote a story on back when I was at the time on just the dozen or so states that we saw increase teacher pay. Um, it's a huge factor, as everyone has. Uh, uh, wow, it's a huge factor, as everyone else has already said. Um, salary is a big decision maker for whether or not people are going to stay as teachers. Um, I think another big one is just. The working conditions. I mean, we're seeing these labor shortages that are going on at different schools. Um, there are teachers who are now spending their lunch times and their planning periods subbing in for different classes. So I think it's not just the pay, but it's also the working conditions as well. Um, we're seeing substitute teachers who are asking for more time to work, um, who are looking for higher pay as well. Um, and again, as everyone has already said, it's so much more stressful to be a teacher now than it really was five, ten years ago. I think a lot of teachers are just looking for that acknowledgement, whether it's from the school or whether it's from parents, but at least that acknowledgement of what they're all going through right now. I think just acknowledging that also goes very far as well. Yeah. I know that I talked to somebody recently who uh, actually lives in my neighborhood and has been a um, he's sold cars for years, you know, a very prominent um, dealership in Atlanta and did that kind of thing. He is now a full-time substitute. And, you know, so he's, he's just switched to that. And so I said to him, so are you in one classroom all the time? That could be a possibility, apparently, that, you know, these full-time substitutes just, they don't have 
the the teachers so they have you know somebody comes in to substitute and they just stay the entire year uh, or he can be moved around and that kind of thing and I asked him how he felt about it and he said he's fine with it but I he's fine but what about what the students are getting on their level Laura talk about that a little bit and your thoughts on all of this um, well, the teacher shortage in Bibb County um, has been around for a while, but it's, it's gotten a little bit worse. Um, here in Bibb, the, the district has taken measures to do uh, virtual teaching, which is kind of a switch up. Um, te- teachers are teaching from a screen from anywhere in the country, and kids are sitting in class in the desks, and um, a su- the district has to hire a substitute to, to, to manage and watch the classroom and also pay for this virtual teacher. Um, so it's, um, it's, it's not cost effective, and it's certainly not the the ideal learning environment. Yeah, Maureen, we've seen this situation for quite a few years now where we have these long-term substitutes and and that is going to get worse if you still if you have these teachers who are burned out and leaving the profession, not coming into the profession, all of that. You know, what I'm worried about, and, and we haven't reported enough on it, I don't think, is that we're going to see, um, because of the resurgence of COVID, we have 86 counties out of uh, Georgia's 159 at high uh, community rates, and we're starting school uh, the week of August 1st. So we're going to have teachers out. We're going to have the same, I think, environment, the same conditions we had when we started school a year ago. We're going to have to pull in subs. We're going to have students out as well. I, I think we are still back to where we were. I don't think we're going to get our normal school year. Uh, if I were, you know, I'm so happy. I have four children uh, who are now out of K-12, and uh, they had, of course, two years of online learning practically at Georgia Public Colleges. But, you know, I, I do think that uh, we have to, we're going to have to address this because, um, I mean, I think what, you know, Bibb's doing is resourceful, but the relationship, which is the key, the key factor in student success, a teacher who notices, pays attention, encourages, and that is hard to do from a screen in Iowa to a classroom in Macon. So I do think that we have to, again, make it a priority. I heard a forum yesterday where the Missouri Commissioner of Education said, we have to get the public to understand the value of a great teacher. It is the most important thing, and I just don't think the public buys that yet. Yeah, and you know we all remember the the best teachers that we all had. We know our good. Te- we re- remember them. They're what they taught us sticks with us forever. And so you're there. The kids just aren't getting those relationships anymore. They're not feeling the same way. And I'm glad you brought up the the pandemic still surging because <laughs> I've been thinking lately about how this school year is starting with these this variant really very 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 contagious uh, out there right now. Jim, uh, yeah, Maureen and and and, and others, if, if if they want to, ch- uh, Julia and, and and Laura, if you want to ch- uh, uh, chime in here, uh, we've got 159, 180 school systems in the state. They're all. Uh, if if a parent wants to know if there's a staffing crisis uh, at 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 the school where where his or her child attends, how, uh, how what are the signs? What what should a parent be looking for if if uh, if uh, if there's a, 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 a just a, a a dangerous vacancy of teaching positions? Yeah, Laura, what are you what are you thinking? Well, um, some signs to me are uh, new and uh, varieties of contracts with staffing agencies um, that provide subs and teachers and parapros. Um, that is just a signal to me that that you know there's an issue with recruitment and. Um, and, and retention and indicative of other, possibly other issues. Yeah. Julia, thoughts? Yeah. Um, for parents, um, when you talk to your child after school, um, ask them, you know, did your teacher teach you today or was it a sub? I think a really good indication of a teacher shortage will be if there's a sub there for a whole week, two weeks, perhaps a month. Um, if the uh if their child had to do a joint class with a different class going on at the school, signs like that will generally give you that um, vibe. Yeah. Marie? You know, I think those are all true points. I, I do think that because we are going into a surge in, in the, um, the uh, new variant of COVID, it's going to be hard to assess whether or not it's, it's a 
some fundamental flaw in how that district recruits and retains teachers or whether or not it's simply a high level of COVID that's keeping them out of the classroom and keeping kids out of the classroom too. I mean, the absence, the, the attendance issue isn't just that teachers are out, kids are out. Last year was, you know, record for kids missing school due to um, exposures and um, cases of COVID. But, uh, you know, there, there's pretty good evidence that subs, long-term subs are problematic for student achievement. You know, I think we have to look at, we have to figure out where the problems are in Georgia. That's something the state could help with, frankly, because I think recruitment in rural areas uh, still presents challenges in Georgia. You know, teachers, young people out of UGA, out of Kennesaw State, uh, out of Spelman, they want to go to where there's other young people, where there's a coffee shop, where there's a brew pub, and there are places in, um, in rural Georgia where there's not even a Walmart. So, it's hard to know how you're going to get a 23-year-old to go there. And we have to talk about grow your own teacher programs. There's so many things that we need to be doing more of. We're doing some of it, but we need to do more of it given the current uh, status. Yeah, and I know that the uh, the governor pushed this um, pipeline to teaching uh, a few years ago where he was, you know, trying to give loan um loan givebacks, right, when it came to people who were going to college so that if you taught for a certain period of time that that would that would be an incentive enough to have, you know, some of your loans reduced, those kinds of things. I'm just not sure how effective those are at this point. Do you have any idea, Maureen? Have you have you talked to anybody about that? Um, you know, I, I think, well, first of all, I think we can tell they're not so effective because the teacher prep enrollments are down statewide. Uh, you know, I, I do think that we have to start this recruitment in high school. There have to be teachers or administrators who, who single out high school kids and say, I see you as a potential teacher. Have you thought about that? I, I really believe right now, frankly, everyone I know wants their kid to become a coder. That's all I hear about. I haven't heard a single parent mention journalism, frankly, or teaching in, 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 in like five years. So, I really think we have to get the public on board. We have to make teaching a great profession and and, and a good paying one. Yeah, and I think those high school students have to see what's happening in the classroom and feel comfortable with it and say, hey, this is what I want to do. But with all that we've talked about this hour in terms of some of the the, the pressures that teachers are feeling and some of the the, the security issues, that we've got to get a handle on that before we can make that attractive. This has been a great conversation and certainly in my wheelhouse, so I just appreciate all of you. Uh, That's really all the time we have today for the show. I want to thank all of our panelists, uh, Jim Galloway, as always, Maureen Downey, Laura Corley, Julia Hayward. I do want to mention a couple of notes as I wrap up. On Monday, we're looking forward to, as I've mentioned before, this panel of experts talking about college student loans. And Jim, we're going to get to some of the things you brought up. We'd like to hear from our audience. If you have questions for our panel, leave us a voicemail at 404-494-0421. And that's 404-494-0421. And we'll put that number on at GPB News on our Twitter feed, too, 404-494-0421. And got to put this in. Catch the premiere of Lawmakers Beyond the Dome this Sunday at 7 a.m. and 5 p.m. In this first episode of our new show, we look at the impact of the recently passed concealed carry law on both citizens and law enforcement. I think everyone will find something very interesting in the show, some things that they may not have thought of. We have law enforcement on the show and some others with some wonderful things to think about. Um, For now, I have a special thanks now to our the talented team that produces the show, Natalie Mendenhall, Chase McGee, Victoria Evans-Cash, and Jay Cook. And I want to thank all of you for joining us, and have a great Friday. <laughs>